Well, this morning we return to the ninth chapter of the book of Romans, hoping to conclude our consideration of Romans 9. But to do that, um, I'm going to have to be not exhaustive by any means. It's a passage filled with intriguing statements and Old Testament quotations that uh, we could really spend lots of weeks looking at the ins and the outs, the details of Paul's argument. And one of the things that's fairly, fairly clear from Romans chapter 9 is, is, is Paul is concerned to uh, vindicate the great honor of his God and of his king, that there is no unrighteousness with God, that there is no unfaithfulness with God, and the things that uh, have happened in his own day with regard to Jewish unbelief, with regard to the church now being comprised of Jew and Gentile in one body and all the problems that that brought about in the church, that there's nothing that's happened that has uh, rendered the word of God without effect or nothing that has happened that has made the word of God not to be faithful. And uh, that's the basic argument. It's of the sort of that's usually called a theodicy. It's a technical name of an endeavor to justify God's ways with men. Um, but, you know, there's no real, way, real need for that because God is God and we are creatures. And that's ultimately where Paul ends up in much of his argument in Romans chapter 9 is that we need to understand the creature-creator distinction. We need to understand that we're not going to figure it all out. We're not going to know God's ways to any measure of completeness and fullness. As it says in Deuteronomy, the secret things belong unto the Lord our God. They belong to Him. He's not pleased to divulge those things to us, assuming we could ever grasp it or understand it in terms of infinite wisdom, in which we probably can't. But those things which He's revealed to us, that's for us. We're to grapple with the things God's made known. That we're to receive the things that God has made known and live in the light of the certainties of His revealed Word and His revealed will. In preparation for the devotion I did at the Christmas party last evening, I was reading through the book of Micah. In Micah chapter 5 is the text we looked at. But in chapter 4, a very intriguing statement is made. I didn't look much at the details of the background of the statement of Micah 5.2. Uh, but in the background is the, the threat of the kingdoms to the to the east that will come from the north to devastate the kingdom of Israel to the north and the kingdom of Judah to the south, both in terms of the Assyrian invasion in 722 BC, the later Babylonian invasion that took captive the people into Babylon for 70 years. Um, and uh, in the fourth chapter, when this disclosure that God has made, I mean, he's spoken of the fact that in the latter days, glorious things are going to happen. Zion's going to be elevated. It's going to be the highest mountain of the world. Many nations are going to come to it. Many people are going to learn God's ways. Out of Zion will go forth God's laws. Word from Jerusalem. Uh, God's going to assert his rights in his kingship. And he's going to bring in a kingdom in which the swords will be turned into plowshares and the spears into pruning hooks. But that's It'll come to pass in the latter days. That's going to be in the fullness of the times. That's going to be ultimately when Jesus comes. But in the present hour, danger is coming. Travail is coming. Trouble is coming. Distress is coming. Trauma is coming. Lamentation is coming. And he, he makes a statement in chapter 4 and verse 9. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? And that's likely a... Um, 
a, 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 an ironic sort of statement because in fact there, there is no king when the, this event that he's going to talk about comes um, he says has your counselor perished the pain seized you like a woman in labor writhe and groan O daughter of Zion like a woman in labor for now you shall go out from the city you're leaving pack your bags deportation's coming Dwell in the open country, you shall go to Babylon. You shall go to Babylon. But it's in Babylon, there, he says, you shall be rescued. There, in Babylon, the Lord will redeem you from the hands of your enemies. Now many nations are assembled against you. Yeah, when the Babylonians came, we read about the Moabites especially, they were rejoicing that what Babylon was doing to Israel, the Edomites, they were rejoicing about what Babylon was doing to Israel. Now their opportunity is poised. Maybe they're going to take some of their land. Maybe they're going to expand their own borders at the expense of Israel, taken captive by the Babylonians. And so it says that many nations will be assembled against you, saying, let her be defiled. Let our eyes gaze upon Zion. Listen what the next words are that the Lord says to these nations, these adversary nations who think they have it all figured out. They know, hey, this is our opportunity. This is something that God has done or our gods have done or whoever has done it. This is, this is a wonderful thing in our sight. Verse 12 says, but they do not know. These nations do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan. And in a real sense, that's the real answer to the whole question of God's ways with man. We don't know. We just simply do not understand. We do not know the thoughts of the Lord. And of course, that's where Paul ends up in chapter 11. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Um, God has it all in his hands. He's carrying out his will and his purposes as as seems good in his eyes. And that... (coughs) Seeming good in his eyes is always the way of faithfulness. It's always the way of trustworthiness. It's always the way of wisdom. It's always the way of righteousness and justice. So we can rest our hearts in that reality and in that knowledge. But yet the reality is that uh, the people of the church are are troubled. The Jews especially are troubled. Their fellow Jews are not believing. Maybe Gentiles in the church are kind of playing the part of the Edomites and the Moabites, kind of clapping their hands. The Jews now have been rejected. Gentiles now can come in. And um, Paul's looking to make it clear that these people have to stop their battling with one another. They have to stop fighting with one another. That They have to understand their identity is no longer Jew or Gentile. It's now Christian. It's now in Christ. It's the in Christ identity that's to fill the hearts of these people. And they're going to seem to have to understand that God's carrying out his will. They've not known his plan. They've not known the mind of the Lord. But what's happening is what God is planning to do. And that should be that which brings our hearts to submission and our hearts to joy and our hearts to committing our, heart, our souls to him in terms of his faithful keeping of his people and the carrying on of his plan and of his purposes. What Paul has done is he's expressed his own anguish of Jewish unbelief that ought to be a model for everyone in the church to have that same sense of the anguish where unbelief is found among Jews or Gentiles or anyone 
to realize that they're cut off from these blessings. And for the Jew especially, had so much of the advantages and privileges that the Old Covenant conferred upon the nation of Israel. And they took those things for granted. And they did not make good use of those things. And now they're cut off from the fullness of the blessing that came in the coming of the Messiah. Of their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. And they rejected him. They've rejected their own God who enfleshed. They've rejected their own king. They've rejected their promised Messiah. But it's not as though God's word has failed. It's not as though this is something that the word of God did not anticipate or that somehow um, the promises were different. I think that's what people were thinking. But Paul has to re- basically redefine the notion of Israel, and uh, I think that's even in the Old Testament, that's it's not everyone that's belonging to the nation that is the, a child of God. Again, there were people that were exiled to Babylon. There were people who were called Sodom and Gomorrah <laughs> rather than Jerusalem or Israel. They were deemed to be as evil and as bad as any culture has ever been especially a people that had been given so many advantages and privileges, and God treated them accordingly. There was no generation of the, Jew, of the Israelite nation that manifested widespread faithfulness. Um, heart of heart and stiff of neck, they're making golden calves, even as they saw the mighty works of God. They're refusing to go into the land, even though they saw so many manifestations of the power of God, that they didn't believe that uh, God was able to whip a bunch of Canaanites, and uh, so they turned tail and they looked to run. Um, they were always provoking the Lord, and um, their unbelief led to their not entering into the land at the first generation. They died in the wilderness, as uh, Hebrews underscores, and the book of Numbers underscores. Um, but it's always been true that God has a, has a prerogative to choose whom he wills. And he chose Ishmael, um, not Ishmael, he chose Isaac and not Ishmael. He chose Jacob and not Esau. There is this principle of God's own purpose and will and choice. And we're not privy to why he does what he does, but he does what he does for reasons that he has that are good and right and fair and wise and, and all the rest. And then Paul begins to raise these questions. And they're questions that mortal man will always raise over and against God. Is is God unjust? No. Uh, He has mercy upon whom he wills. Because in the end of the day, folks, no one really is deserving of mercy. You know, this statement, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy and compassion, on whom I will have compassion, you know where that's found? You can look at your Bibles if you have a note at the bottom. It's Exodus 34. And what happened in Exodus 34? Well, that's after Exodus 33. What happened in Exodus 33? The golden calf. The golden calf. And there's a sense in which God could have wiped them out. In fact, he said he would. And it'll start to go over again with, with Moses. And Moses then intercedes. And, of course, God's will and purpose is not to wipe them out, and hence they're not wiped out. And though there are some who are judged, uh, yet uh, there are, the nation still has mercy shown to it. God's going to lead them. God's going to bring them up to the land. And, and in that sense, he says, look, my mercy is sovereign. This will really come down to it. None of these people deserve mercy. You know, you know we say, I want justice. Be careful. If the fullness of what justice demands comes to you, um, 
it's, it's not a pretty story because our sins deserve death. Our sins deserve divine wrath, not mercy, not goodness, not love. And yet God showers his goodness and mercy. He's free to do it on whom he wills. And then the other part, whom he wills, he hardens, is never without cause. Again, the very words where he says in verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Uh, You know where that one's found? In the book of Exodus? It's in chapter 9, verse 16. And you know where that's found? It's found after the seventh plague has already come upon the nation. So Pharaoh had like seven opportunities to let the people go. And they refused. And uh, he's hardening his heart. He has no desire. I mean, think of it. Who are we talking about? We're talking about Pharaoh that put to death the infants. The Pharaoh that enslaved the nation of Israel and would not let them go. Treating human beings like chattel. Like property, just to be to the advantage of his own people. And what does he deserve from the hand of God? He's hardening his heart. He says, who is the Lord that I should listen to his voice? And then God says, for this very purpose, I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Remember, when they entered into the land, Rahab had already heard what God did to the Egyptians, right? God's power had been made known in the the nations of the earth. This was a people that had God in their midst, the God that brought these plagues upon the Egyptians. His power is manifest in that way. And God has the right to do that. Because what did this man Pharaoh deserve from his hand other than to be cut off and to be judged for his multiple transgressions, his iniquities, his, his, his cruelty, his unkindness, his murderous intent against even infants, the least, uh, the most vulnerable. He's concerned to do what he wills. And uh, God's, God's right to do that. And you can't say that's unjust. God has a purpose. God has a plan. It's not known by people what that plan is, but God has a plan, and our hearts should rest content in that. He has mercy on whom he wills. None deserve it. He has mercy on whom he wills. He hardens whomever whomever he wills. And when he hardens them, it's not uncaused. (laughs) They've already been given light and understanding, and they turned their back on it. He's shown his glory in the heavens that he's made. And they, knowing God, glorified him not as God, neither were they thankful, became vain in their reasonings, their foolish heart was darkened. Therefore God gave them up. Therefore God brought judicial hardening upon them. It's not uncaused. So God's free in, in, in that respect. And, and then he goes on, and another question is asked. The first question was, is there injustice with God that he elects and chooses and does his will in the way that he does it? And in verse 19, you'll say to me, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? <laughs> if, the, if the greatest of all the monarchs and emperors of the ancient world, Pharaoh, could not resist the will of God, who's going who's to stand up against God and say, you're wrong or... Um, God does as he wills. How does he still find fault? Well, maybe because there's lots of fault to find. (laughs) Maybe because there's lots of guilt and lots of culpability that the human race has because of their vanity, because of their self-centeredness, because of their pride, because of their arrogance, because of their idolatry, because of... I mean, there's lots of fault to find with the human race. Paul doesn't go there. 
Paul could have arraigned the world with its sin. He does it in chapter 1. He could do a similar act here, just arraigning the world for their sin. And say, come on, get real. Why does he find fault? Look at the newspaper or go online and see what's happening in the world. You see what God, why God finds fault. But he comes to answer that question back what I mentioned before, the creator-creature distinction. God is God. Who are you, O man? Who are you, O man? To answer back to God. And then he goes into the matter of potter and the clay. Well, what is molded? Say to its molder. Why have you made me like this? Think of a potter at his wheel. Make fashioning a pottery. And the piece of pottery looks back up at the potter and says, Hey, cup? What are you making a cup for? I want to be a platter. (laughs) What What are you making? I want to be some artistic kind of thing, not just something to be stuck in a cupboard. (laughs) I want to be a statue. I want to be, well, who are you? Piece of clay. To say to the molder and fashioner, the potter, uh, what he's to be doing with his his clay. I think of this in terms of when I go walking. And um, I'm on the rail trail. And one thing I, I really don't like, I really don't like, you know, people back of me speeding on past me I mean it happens a lot you know the turtles go faster no I'm kidding (laughs) but (laughs) but especially when I see someone that's back of me and they're like older than me and they're really out of shape and I'm saying how in the world are they walking faster than I'm walking well you know what the answer is I'm barely 5'7 and they're 6'4 and so every, every step they take it's like a foot and a half longer than mine. So, stands to reason they're going to pass me. Because I have to take, you know, three, four steps for every one step that they take to keep up with them. I'm vertically challenged, in other words. I'll never be a basketball player. I'll never be, uh, I'll never be tall. Who, which one of you, Jesus says, by giving thought, can add a cubit to his stature? You can't grow taller just by wishing it or desiring it. And you can begin to say, Lord, why haven't you made me taller? Why can't I be a basketball player? Why can't I be Kareem Abdul-Jabbar or Victor Wawiyam, whatever that guy is, the French guy that's now six, seven foot six. And he, he's amazing. He's amazing, the athleticism of a guy that big. Plays for San Antonio Spurs, if you haven't heard his name. Um, Bad team, but a great player on that team. But anyway, all of your thoughts in the world are not going to make you different than you are. And your wisdom is to accept how God made you, how God put you together. And it may not be with great stature, or it may not be that you have a mind to tackle equations and be an expert in geometric um, equations and, and such. and You're not going to write books on math. I'm like that. I, 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 I was one math credit short of getting my diploma when I was in the military. 
uh, dropped out of high school and uh, I had some credits I still needed to get. And I was just so thankful when I realized I didn't have to take calculus or I didn't have to take trigonometry or I didn't have to take retake algebra. I decided to go to summer school for that. And I think they gave me something like some kind of a, a mathematical thing that didn't involve a whole lot of uh, whole lot of math knowledge. And I was very relieved at that, and I ended up getting my diploma. But um, what's my point? We're all put together differently. Why is it that people from India are all the people that know the value of pi down to I don't know 100 digits <laughs> because they have minds that are able to make those relations and do those calculations. And um, other people can't. Other people don't have that capacity in their ability. It even term, in terms of, of, of ethnicity enters in to capacities and, and ways we are put together. Why trouble your mind about that? Why say, I'm not this, so I'm upset and I'm angry? Take the gifts God's given you and use them for his honor and use them for his glory. And it's so with respect to the spiritual liabilities that people have. I wasn't born in a Christian home. I didn't get Christian training in the church. I didn't get knowledge and understanding from parents that loved Christ. I didn't get prayed for by my relatives because they didn't know the Lord to pray for me. Um, I am who I am. And my identity is what it is. But now I have an opportunity to seek the Lord and do my best with what he's given me. And not to argue, you haven't made me like someone else has made. You haven't put me together like somebody else has been put together. And learn to thank God for the gifts that other people have. But here, people complain. Because that's what we're good at. We're good at murmuring and complaining. That's what Paul could write to the church at Philippi, a church that he has little problems with, and said, let no murmurings and complainings come from you. Because that's what happens. We tend to fall into those those patterns of complaining that God's not given us this and the glass is always half, em- half empty rather than half full. But God has his rights to do as he wills, to make of the same lump. Again, fallen humanity is that whole lump that God has to deal with. We're all a fallen race of creatures and none of us are deserving of any good from his hand and yet he's willing to make known his wrath and his power and his mercy and his love in the way he works enduring with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction the, I mean they're, they're all deserving of destruction they're, they're prepared for it they, they constantly sin they don't want the Lord they don't seek the Lord they don't desire the Lord they're not, they're not complaining I'm not a Christian they're not complaining I'm not a, a you know, they're happy with who they are and what they're doing and what they're seeking. And yet God endures with them. God is patient with them. Maybe there'll be something that will click somewhere down the line and bring them to their senses, bring them to be like the prodigal son, realizing that in his departure from his father's house, he's lost ever so much. I will rise and go to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against heaven in your sight. God's patient to endure with their rebellions and their wickedness. And he doesn't send lightning bolts from heaven to, to destroy them. 
And he does that, he says, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. It's interesting, the the vessels for uh, destruction are um, prepared for destruction. That's what they are. That's their nature. But now God has to himself prepare. He prepares. To make the changes, he has to intervene. He has to work in these vessels. They're left to themselves. They're prepared for destruction. And he has to then say, okay, we're going to prepare you for something different. We're going to, we're going to do a, a, a... What's the thing they do when they redo someone's hairstyle? Makeover. God has to do a makeover. It's called a new creation. He has to bring a new life, a new birth. to do a complete makeover of the people that are in and of themselves. And let's level that house. It's not worthy to be lived in. And God says, no, we're going to just redo this house and we're going to make it prepared for, for dwelling and it's prepared for, 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 for honor. God has the right to do that and that's exactly what he does. And then he does it in a way and he glorifies his grace in calling into being as his people, people not just from the Jewish nation but from the Gentile nations as well. Even us, he says in verse 24, even us, whom he has called. That's the key issue. Remember, whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, whom he foreknew, he called. Whom he called, he justified, and whom he justified, he glorified. God has his right to do as he wills, and he calls a people into being. Dead, lifeless sinners, dead bones, dry bones. He calls them into existence, calls them into being. And he does so from not only the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. And that's for his glory. That's for his glory. And so Paul's now going to focus in upon the fact that what God does in this electing of grace, in this election of his will and his purpose that we can't get, we don't understand, God knows all that he's doing, why he's doing it, how it's to be done. It's all done in wisdom. It's all done in faithfulness. It's all done in love. It's all done in a way that magnifies his goodness and his power and his his wrath and, and all the rest. And what happens is a people were formed. And they're formed out of Jew and Gentile alike. And now Paul's going to say, this is something that was not unexpected. This is something that is not unanticipated. This isn't something that just has happened and, wow, I wonder how this ever came about. Paul's going to go back to the Old Testament and show this is exactly what God said he would do. Or he said things, at least it's consistent with what's being done. Indeed, he says in verse 25... He says in Hosea, begins with Hosea 1 and 2. Uh, the first quote is from Hosea 2. And again, that's the whole business where Hosea is told to marry a, a wife of uh, ill repute. Um, and um, he marries her and he comes to love her. He comes to love her. And, and uh, there's a whole interplay between this thing that a, shame, a prophet's called to do that in the culture would be shameful and yet uh, Hosea can replicate in his own heart in his own affections towards Gomer the reality of God's affection towards a, a sinful people and how God designs to have that people to be his own and he says uh, the quotation from chapter 2 is those who are not my people I will call my people those who are not part of the covenant people who are not part of the 
nation of Israel, God's now going to gather to himself. I will call my people. Her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. You know, like Gomer. Was Gomer beloved? Well, for one night stand maybe, but not for, for the long term, not for bringing this woman into one's heart and into one's home and to shower love and affection upon her. And yet God's going to love her. God's the one who's going to shower affection upon those that no one else will love, no one else will regard and no one else will consider. God will call her beloved. And the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, and this is back to chapter 1, they will be called sons of the living God. So God's going to do this amazing thing in bringing in other uh, nations that were not his part of the covenant nation uh, to be the people of God. Now, ultimately, that was the end of the game anyway, because the Abrahamic covenant had as its ultimate goal is that through Abraham's seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed, right? So somewhere along the line, that had to be just don't, it wasn't just a negative thing. Don't do the works of the Canaanites. Don't do the works of the Egyptians. Don't follow their gods. Somewhere along the line, Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations. The nations were supposed to come to know Israel's God through the works of Israel's people. And yet they were failing in this calling. And what God is doing here, as we've seen, he's redefining the nation so that this nation, this new nation, this royal nation, this holy people, this people for God's own possession, as the church is called by Peter, using language from Exodus 19 to define the new covenant people of God, is that we might show forth the praises of him who called us out of darkness into marvelous light. That the peoples of the world, the nations of the world, will see through the church the exceeding glory of God and the greatness of God's mercy and goodness and grace. And so the church becomes the light to the nation. You know, as we, Jesus says, make disciples of all the nations. The gospel of this kingdom must be preached among all the nations. And the end will come. This is the church's mandate. This is the church's work. To be light to the nations. Israel was not a light to the nations. And yet God through Hosea says, this just simply means I'm going to call a people that were not my people. A people that were not beloved will become beloved. Those who were not my people will be called sons of the living God. What do you see happening? Exactly that. Exactly that happening through Christ. The words of Hosea are coming into fulfillment. Now again, the way in which these promises come into fulfillment were not understood by the Old Testament prophets. We need to say that. And a lot of times Christians think, and we'll see an example of that this morning with Isaiah 7.14 in the morning worship. We think, well, hey, Isaiah's talking about Jesus. Isaiah's, so Hosea's talking about the church. No, no. They're talking in Old Testament language, and language the Old Testament people of God would have understood. They would not have understood the church. They would not have understood the Christian mission. They would not have understood the coming of the Son of God, who died for us and rose again from the dead. That's for the, our times. That's for the fullness of the time that God sent forth His Son to be born of a woman, to be born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. The Old Testament is still that promissory thing. It's, it's, it's future, it's promissory, but it's always used in Old Testament terms because it's not the time of fulfillment yet. That's the time of the promise. And so God's expressing the promise that ultimately is going to be fulfilled in Christ 
in, in language and relation in relation to Old Testament times and Old Testament period that the people of the Old Testament didn't really understand, but they could live in hope. They live in expectation. God's going to do something enormous, huge, amazing. So they could live in hope of what the future will be in times that were very dim and dark. When we move from Hosea to a contemporary uh, Isaiah, who cries out concerning Israel. And here's the thought of the remnant that comes about in Isaiah. Um, I think also Micah speaks of the remnant. Um, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. And that's back in Isaiah chapter 10, I believe it is, that speaks of the Assyrian invasion of the northern kingdom. And um, they're going to be carried away. The majority of the people, there's only going to be a remnant will be saved. Small remnant people. The remnant is the ends of a carpet. You look at the the carpet here, if you just cut out the the ends of it, you'd, you'd have a remnant. And maybe you have it from memory, we used to have a carpet like this, but this ought to be just pulled up and thrown, thrown away. You might, might have a remnant to remember what was used to be here, but or also remnants are, people get remnants in order to get a little bit of something they can compare with their furniture to see, is this going to fit before the whole thing is, is brought out? But the whole of the nation, besides the, the end pieces, besides this remnant people, besides this small group that will be saved, they're not saved. They go into captivity, they go into exile, they go into uh, destruction. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, which of course was the promise given to Abraham, only a remnant will be saved. The great majority of the nation um, never came to faith in the God of Israel. For the Lord will carry out his sentence in verse 28 upon the earth fully and without delay. That's also back in um, chapter 10 of Isaiah. And then another quotation from Isaiah. It's from chapter 1 when Israel and Judah are called Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. Eventually they are called Sodom and Gomorrah, I think in the very next verse. But in other words, we, we would have been simply destroyed if God had not left us uh, offspring. Let's go back to that passage in um, Isaiah 1 and verse 9. A lot of times Paul quotes from the Greek translation called the Septuagint, but um, yeah, it says offspring, and I probably got that from the Greek translation, but in Hebrew, in verse 9, it didn't sound right to me. That's why I decided to go back. In 1 9, it says, If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, a few survivors, there's going to come this, this onslaught, this invasion of the nation. And if the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors of this invasion, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah, simply blotted off the face of the earth. So God is going to leave survivors. He's going to leave a remnant. There's going to, the, the number of Israel is this great number, like the sands of the sea. Not everyone who is of the nation in terms of their biology, being Abraham's 
descendants in his family tree in terms of his DNA have his spiritual DNA, have, the, have his faith, have the reality of the faith that believed the promises of God and he was declared righteous upon faith. And then Paul draws the conclusion of verse 30. What shall we say then? What shall we say then? Well, here's the answer what, what we should say. We say, have to say the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, they've attained it. They've attained it. They've come to become righteous in God's eyes. Why? Because it's, they've attained a righteousness that is by faith. Again, Abraham believed and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Righteousness does not come by works. It's not come by merit. It's not come by what we do. It comes by what God does for us. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, at least they, they thought would lead to righteousness, uh, Paul says according to the law, he was, he was blameless. Um, he thought that would lead him to righteous standing with God. They did not succeed in reaching that law, a law that would lead to righteousness. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. Faith was not an element. They did it out of legalistic, performance-oriented self-righteousness. Look at me and what I've achieved. Look at me, what I have done. Rather than seeing what God designs to do and what God has done in His Son to be received by faith. Yeah, that was the great obstacle that the Jews had, is that they sought the glory that comes from men, rather than the glory that comes from the only God. They have stumbled, a stumbling stone, it is as written, and here's Isaiah chapter 28, that's being quoted here, uh, where God says, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Again, the picture there is that when the Babylonians invade, the dwelling of God is going to be destroyed. The temple will no longer be. And God's going to start anew. God's going to start to build a temple, build a city, where a stone of stumbling once was. Because the temple became a stone of stumbling because the people trusted in it. Remember Jeremiah? Jeremiah chapter 7, God says, go up to the temple and proclaim this message. You know, you're saying the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. And so what, what, what were they doing? Well, they'd come to the temple of the Lord and they'd bring their sacrifices after they had stained their hands with blood in their violence acts and their immorality and their fornications and their idolatry and their giving sacrifices to the Baals. They were engaged in every imaginable form of evil. And then they'd stand in my house and think everything's good. And God said to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 1, that he cannot abide this. Who's required this at your hand? What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? Well, this means nothing to me. Why? Didn't you, didn't you command this, Lord? Did you not command the temple be built? Did you not command that worship be brought? Did the offerings of the morning and the evening be brought? Did these sacrifices? Yeah, I did. But not in a way that mingles iniquity and the solemn meeting. That's what they were doing. They were trying to put together things that can't be put together. You can't put together the worship of God and performance of evil and think that that's what we're called to be. Just... That's a stone of stumbling. He said, I could live 
as I please and do what I want and be uh, cruel and live just like the people of the world. And yet, well, I have church on Sunday, so hey, I'm in a better situation. But then I can just send up a storm and praise God on Sunday. And folks, there are people that are just like that. They're just like that. Committing every evil deed under the sun. And to them, church becomes a stumbling block. Becomes a stumbling block. They're going to fall over the church. Because they think that they can get easy absolution. Easy pardon. Just by coming to church on Sunday. Give God his, his bid on, the, on Sunday. And go out and do what... I mean, so many... Again, just... Just watch a, a marathon of Dateline, <laughs> and you just see all of these Christians. They're all part of churches, and they're all doing the most appalling sort of things imaginable, including murders and cover-ups. Preachers who actually kill their lover's spouse and then stand in the pulpit at their funeral, preaching their funeral service. Can you imagine that? There's episodes on Dateline that show that very thing. Give you the, the guy that eventually goes to jail for the murder of the spouse preaching at the, at the funeral. A stone of stumbling. The church that should be the means of people coming to God becomes a stone of stumbling. Because people get easy forgiveness and easy absolution. You know, Protestants, they mock the idea of the confessional. Sometimes people that go to the confessional actually have a broken heart, perhaps, at some of the things they do. I don't think there's lots of broken hearts for the people that sin a storm, storm during the week and they come to an evangelical church with a high-powered ministry and lots of high-powered singing. You don't get a broken heart that way. Sometimes I think people that go into the confessional might be better off than people that come to evangelical churches steeped in hypocrisy. Anyway. It's easy to criticize the Catholics and not see our own sins as evangelicals. That's how the church, that's how the temple was. It became a stone of stumbling. It became a rock of offense. But whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Ultimately, that stone of stumbling that the temple provided in the Old Testament is actually becomes in Jesus a stone of stumbling that unbelievers reject. And he becomes, in accordance with the 118th Psalm, the head of the corner. The corner, head of the corner of a new temple. A temple that's comprised not of hypocrites, but of living stones. Jesus is the living stone. It's not just a a building of brick and mortar. It's not just a building of you know, literal stones. It's, it's Jesus who's the head of the corner. He's the stone of stumbling that the builders rejected. The people of Israel, the, the leaders, they rejected. He's become the head of the corner. And we become living stones built upon Jesus to be a spiritual house, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. We might not be a high-powered center of entertainment in the evangelical world, but let's be living stones to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's not seek to just appeal to our vanity because we want to get big. Let's not just appeal to the people of the world 
they look at us and how you know entertaining we can be and how much fun you can have in coming to our assemblies let's recognize the danger that formal religion sometimes can break can, can be in raising up a generation of hypocrites rather than a generation of, of true believers anyway so I think that's where Paul has left us in the um, ninth chapter he has shown his own anguish for the unbelief of Israel he has shown the, the privileges that they've rejected he has redefined what Israel is or actually coming to a biblical definition of what Israel is throughout its history He's answered objections. He's buttressed it with the Old Testament, affirming the fact that this is exactly what God said he planned on on doing. And then he's going to come back in the first verse of the 10th chapter to again renew his own heart's concern for those Jews that are not part of this elect people, at least at this point, because of their unbelief. His desire and prayer for them that uh, they should be saved. And he's going to go on to speak. If chapter 9 is uh, heavy upon the subject of divine sovereignty, um, chapter 10 really is a good follow-up because chapter 10 emphasizes the word is near you. It's not a hard thing to become a Christian. You say, how can I become a Christian? I mean, I'm part of that bump of fallen humanity so how would I become a Christian well the word is near you that you if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead you will be saved the preachers are so sent to preach whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved I mean if divine sovereignty is the note of chapter 9 the call of the gospel, the responsibility of human beings who hear the message of the gospel to leave their sins and leave their idols and come to faith in the Lord Jesus is certainly there in abundance in the 10th chapter. And I find that so interesting in scripture. Whenever you have statements that are made that are filled with this reality, and let's not say it's, 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 a, it's a dream of ivory tower theologians it's not it's right in the text of scripture again and again and again no no one named john calvin made this stuff up <laughs> augustine made this stuff up it's in the word of god i choose never, hardly ever to call myself a calvinist and people have called me that i understand why they do it but i'm a christian i'm a christian and I'm not, I'm not part of some small sect in Christianity. I'm part of the universal church that may not include a lot of people that don't see what I see in these texts of Scripture. But I acknowledge they see things that maybe some of my supposed Calvinist associates don't see because they see the human responsibility of chapter 10 and the call of the gospel, and they take that seriously. But a lot of people that are glorying in divine sovereignty in chapter 9 are just not listening to chapter 10. Yeah. See, all of God's people see at least part of it, don't they? They see at least part of it. So we can take that as the basis of our fellowship and are drawing near to others in the church who maybe don't see what we see, but they see some things we see. And so let's make that the, the starting point, and we'll, 
love one another and encourage one another and bless one another and labor with one another. And, and by the way, I got a few things maybe I could show you. Maybe where you taught about that whole Calvinism business, just maybe you were taught it wrong. I find that's true too. People hear about Calvinism from people that are just Calvinists, they're not Christians. Or perhaps they're not very kind Christians, or perhaps they're not very wise Christians, and they say things perhaps they ought not to say. Maybe I've said too much on this subject this morning anyway, but I hope some of it's been helpful. So I think we just need to be balanced. Scripture has its own internal balance, doesn't it? And chapter 10 follows chapter 9. And, you know, it's easy to say, well, I'd love to live in chapter 9, forget chapter 10. <laughs> you can't. You can't, and God will, and we'll get into it next week. But you can't be in chapter 10 to the exclusion of what Paul's already told us in chapter 9 to see it both in the light of, of one another. And I think that's the internal balance the scripture has that if we, if we grasp, grasp it, um, we'll see us, uh, well, it'll leave us in good, in good, good spiritual shape. Uh, may God be pleased to bless the things we've said this morning. Let's go before his presence in prayer. Father, once again, we give you thanks for your word, that it is truth, and we're thankful, Lord, that you have your people who are part of your elect, even if they can't define what even that means. None of us know your plans to any measure of fullness. None of us understand your ways with any measure of clarity and completeness. We stand in awe of who you are. We stand in awe of the might of your power and of your wisdom and of your love and of your kindness and your compassion and we pray we will live in the light of who you are we be a people that ever submit to your purposes and will whether they're things having to do with the physical life that we live or the life of the soul of the soul that lord we would recognize that there are things we've been given that we do have responsibilities to use and to use for your glory and those things that we've not been given the things we've not been blessed with we should still rejoice when others have those qualities and those capacities that we lack and, and benefit from their lives and their, their fellowship and, and, and enjoy um, just the way you, that you disperse your gifts um, to people, not evenly for sure, but yet for the benefit of the whole, that the whole body is blessed and benefited by that which every joint supplies. So we pray that you'd help us to see these things, give us balance in our Christian lives, not for the sake of balance, but for the sake of being biblical, to have a biblical understanding of your truths and ways that don't pair truths, one truth against another, but see that all these truths come from your hand and need to be seen in the light of one another. So bless us, we pray, with wisdom and understanding. Bless us as we greet one another this morning, have a time of fellowship with each other, and then enter into the morning hour of worship as we'd ask for these mercies. In Jesus' name, amen.